Well, I'm excited to begin a new series today <clears throat> through the final book of the, new or the Old Testament, um, the book of Malachi. And one of the things that I think we will find relevant and helpful in this book, even during this difficult season, is the fact of the foreknowledge of God. As we go along in our study, I want you to realize first and perhaps foremost that nothing surprises God. Whatever it is, He knew. God knew all of this was going to happen. And God knew not only that the people of Malachi's time needed Him to speak into what was happening, that people in our generation would need to hear His timeless words as well. God knew that every single one of us in this room would need to hear the exact words we are going to study over the next few weeks, roughly 2,400 years after they were spoken. That's just how big God is. And I think you will eventually see for yourself, as I have seen, that this ancient book could not be more relevant for us today, right now, at Go Church. Now, we are of the confession that the entire Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. The whole thing. Not just the words of Christ that may be in red. Not just the New Testament. Not just anything. But the whole thing is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And that's how we approach the Holy Bible. That said, we can actually take Malachi, whose name means the Lord's messenger, as an even more direct revelation of God than many other portions of Scripture. How so? Well, in the sense that Malachi is directly quoting God throughout most of the book. And so spiritually speaking, what I'm asking is that you would pray as a church family that together in this season, we would be hit with an awareness that God is speaking to us in a personal way. Even through our study of this book called Malachi, what will we hear from God? How will it apply to us today? I'm not entirely sure, but I hope that we will know that we have heard from God together. Generally speaking, the theme of Malachi is revival. This can be seen in what I consider to be the thesis verse of the book, chapter 3, verse 7. <clears throat> from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and I will return to you. There could not possibly be more appropriate words for the church to hear today. God says, return to me, and I will return to you. I pray that by the time we finish this season together, each of us has actually heard those words, and I pray that we will have heard them, not from the preacher, not even from Malachi, but from God himself. After all, these are the literal words of God in direct quotation. The title of this series is simply, God Says. As you will see, Malachi is structured as a divine drama, wherein God is virtually the only one with a speaking part. 
This book is every bit God saying what God wants to say. Even the responses of his chosen people are voiced by God on their behalf as he anticipates their cynical objections and speaks back to himself. Another way to explain this is to point out that almost every sentence in the book of Malachi is surrounded by quotation marks. Because again, almost every sentence is presented as coming straight from the mouth of God. Now, of course, there are certainly other portions of Scripture like this, quoting God, but Malachi stands apart in the sheer percentage of the book that is direct quotation from God. And so this is the reason that I've titled the series, God Says. Let's look at the opening verse, which is basically a label or a title. Verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I want to quickly point out a couple of observations we can make from this opening. First, the word oracle tells us we are about to hear a new revelation from God. This was going to be new information to the original audience. What they heard in this opening is this. God himself is about to say something to you today. And not merely a, re a reiteration of what he's already said, but actually a brand new word for you today. That's how the original audience would have taken this opening. By the way, you will never hear me say, I have received an oracle of the word of the Lord. Neither I nor anyone else in this age will be handing out any oracles or any new information from God. Why? Because Jesus was the complete and final finished word. The final revelation of God. And so this type of prophetic utterance was finished through him and his apostles. Jesus was and is the final word. The canon of scripture closed with Jesus Christ and those who witnessed his resurrection. Essentially, at the close of the apostolic age, God had already said everything he wanted to say. This becomes clear in several places, such as when the Apostle Paul said, If anyone else says anything new or different or tries to add to this gospel we have preached, even though he be an angel, he should be rejected. Now, I am not insinuating that God does not continue to personally guide us or to show us specific truths to be applied in unique ways to our lives. But I am saying that he uses already revealed scripture to do so. No one is writing Holy Scripture today. There are no new oracles. No. God's revelation of himself and his truth are complete in Christ. The idea of the closed canon of scripture is consistent with our understanding of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is finished. Take note that this is the core difference between Orthodox Christianity and most of the cults. Most of them believe in continuous revelation. While we believe Jesus was the final word and there's no more scripture to be written. We believe the Old Testament closed with Malachi, the New Testament closed with Revelation, and that's all there is that God will reveal until Jesus returns. We're not waiting for the next prophet to come with a word but rather we're waiting for Jesus to come back and for him to rescue his church after which judgment will be poured out on this earth. His own return 
is clearly what Jesus told us to expect next. Not another prophet with an addendum or more information or something different, not Muhammad or Joseph Smith or those who are writing material for the Watchtower Society. No, in fact, Jesus warned us that false prophets and antichrist would be coming, but to pay no attention to them because the next big thing from God would absolutely be his triumphant return. God's revelation of himself to mankind is complete in what we call the Holy Bible. That said, God's word was not yet complete when Malachi took up his pen. The Hebrew word translated here as oracle means that this is a new revelation, a standalone proclamation, not a re-explanation or further commentary on something God had already sufficiently addressed. We're about to hear additional information from God beyond what Moses or Isaiah or someone else had said. Apparently, God decided a bit more needed to be said on top of what he had already revealed to that point in history. Considering all of the many pages of the Old Testament scripture leading up to this last book, one might think surely God had said enough. Apparently not. And so, we're going to study the final word God had for the people before there was a long delay and until the fullness of time came with the birth of Jesus. Understand that Malachi really is the capstone or bookend to the old covenant revelation of God. These words came to the people after so much else had happened. Malachi is almost like a postlude or a coda or an epilogue in that it was so late in the game and almost after this epoch of the story. Malachi comes at a point when they were wondering if the story would ever come to a happy ending. And they found themselves waiting and perhaps doubting that it ever would. I feel like there are many in the church today or on the fringes of the church who are sort of in that same spot. We await the promised Christ, but it's almost like some people wonder if it's too late to keep believing. Malachi's people waited for Christ's first coming, but they were losing hope. As we wait for Christ again today and long for his second coming, are we losing hope as well? Regardless, I think we will find ourselves needing to hear the same words as those who heard them in the first place. Now, I know that <clears throat> at this point I am harping on something, but I think it is worth the time. I want you to truly pause long enough to realize that what we are about to study together consists of direct words from the Lord that is Yahweh, the one true God. Just think about that for a moment. Here, the prophet is only a mouthpiece. His cultural context or personal perspective doesn't even come, to, come into play because he is simply dictating from God. When it comes to Malachi, in my view, any personal motivations the author might have had don't even need to be considered. By contrast, the Apostle Paul often talked about himself. 
And his personal perspective was often prevalent in his writing. And we, we take it that all of those words are inspired by God. But nonetheless, we, as we try to interpret what is going on in, say, 1 Corinthians, we would consider where Paul was coming from based on his background and what he might be trying to work on in the church or the like, but not so with Malachi. Because, again, this man claims to speak the direct words of God. In verse 1, where we read the words, through Malachi. It's actually more thoroughly translated, by the hand of Malachi. In other words, all he did was write it down. This particular phraseology is at least somewhat unique and was not equally true, for example, in the writings of his contemporary, Nehemiah, who was actually writing a personal journal. One he had no idea would wind up being preserved by God as Holy Scripture. By contrast, I'll say it once more that Malachi is about to tell us exactly, word for word, what God says. He opens the book by stating outright that God is actually guiding his hand to write down these specific words. I hope you can see that we have something special in Malachi. And indeed, we do have something special in all of the Old Testament prophets. We are fools if we do not study the words of the prophets which as they virtually all explained in one way or another, are the very words of God. Indeed, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and all the other writers of the New Testament constantly quoted and summarized the words of prophets like Malachi because they took these ancient texts to be the direct words of God. In fact, we will find that practically every verse, every book, every chapter, every, every teaching in Malachi is referred to or even quoted in the New Testament as they try to prove their points by saying, God said this. Let it be clearly understood that we're digging into source material here. We're going to be looking at the baseline of what God wants us to understand about several things. Things like worship and spiritual leadership and tithing and divorce and even true social justice as opposed to most of what is referred to as social justice today. We'll be hearing exactly, word for word, what God has to say about those things. Let me address one other issue from the opening verse. Someone might point out that this message is for Israel, as if that meant it is somehow not for us. After all, it does say the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. First, I would say that you're exactly right, that this word from the Lord is for Israel. We'll need to keep that in mind as we interpret it. But now listen very carefully. Fellow Christian, it is time you understood that you are Israel. You are Jacob. You have been grafted into the olive tree, Romans 11. You and I are adopted children of Abraham. We are the sons and daughters of the covenant. We are the remnant. We are the chosen ones. I can't take much time here to review this point that the Apostle Paul spent so much time making in the New Testament. But you need to understand that when you read what God has to say to the true Israel, which, by the way, has absolutely nothing to do with geography at this point or national identity, but that when God addresses his chosen people, those who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and wait for his Messiah, he is 100% addressing you. That is, if you are indeed his. By grace, through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you are truly a Christian, 
you are truly Israel. And more specifically, you're the Israel of the new covenant, which means a lot of things have changed for the better. Probably going to do Hebrews next. But nonetheless, you're Israel if you're a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. By the way, the people of God referred to as Israel in the Bible always had members who were not physical descendants of Israel. We're not the first to be grafted into the spiritual family tree known as Israel. Remember Rahab, the harlot from Jericho, and remember Ruth, Moabitess, descended from Lot. Neither of these were even daughters of Abraham, much less Israel. Yet they were grafted into the people of Israel by their faith, just like us. And as you might recall, these two women both became grandmothers to no less than Jesus Christ. Additionally, understand that there were always those who were physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, who actually didn't make the cuts into true Israel, the eternal people of God. Not all of the physical descendants of Israel were Israel. No, there were many ways for them to be removed. And at the time of Malachi, for example, even all ten tribes of the north had been cut off from the family of faith, having been killed or dispersed until they were no longer identifiable people groups. In fact, all that was left of Israel's people at the point when Malachi was written were the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. In fact, that is still the case today. Many of the literal descendants of Israel have been cut off. Many Gentiles, like ourselves, have been grafted in. The issue is now faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, if you didn't follow me on all of that, please just take my word for it that when you read what is written to Israel in Scripture, you are reading what God has written to you, albeit with the understanding that we are now under the new covenant, which does not nullify the old, but rather fulfills it. Again, if not all of that is making sense just yet, at least hear this. The word of the Lord to Israel is the word of the Lord to every true follower of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, whether Jew or Gentile, there is no longer a distinction. Galatians 3, Colossians 3, and Romans 10. Now before we move forward in our text, let me remind you of the historical background leading up to this moment. I've touched on some of it already, but I want to Take advantage of this season as we're working through an Old Testament book, and I want to just make sure that in our church, we have a basic grasp of Old Testament history. We're going to try to walk through a general overview of the Old Testament every week throughout this series, and you're going to learn to fill in the blanks with me verbally. Additionally, we'll be using some hand signals as mnemonic devices. Now, I did not invent this, but rather adapted it for our purposes from a video put out by Answers in Genesis a very long time ago. After a few weeks, I hope we can do most of this together. But for today, I can't expect you to know it, but, so just kind of try to follow along the best you can. And so here we go. A walk through the Old Testament. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tells us about creation. So when I pause, it's a chance for you to fill in the blank verbally. You can guess today if you want, but over time you'll know the answers. Chapter 3, the temptation, like the serpent, and fall 
of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. First murder. Chapter 5, genealogies. <laughs> can be a little boring. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the flood. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood. Rainbow. Chapter 10, genealogies again. <laughs> Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Babel. Chapter 12, the call. We have to do that one together. It's the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will show you and I will make you a great and mighty nation and I will make your name great. So Abraham packed his bags. That's my fa one of my favorites, okay? Can we just do that one today? He packed his bags. He packed his bags and he and his family went up around the fertile crescent and they came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? Ever been there? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet, so God had them wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife Sarah had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they're getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not the chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. So Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had how many sons? Twelve. Ten fingers, two earlobes. <laughs> the second to youngest son was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other son didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Come on, you got it. Egypt, where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and the whole family moved down to Egypt for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died. Joseph died. There was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family, which had become very large by this time, so he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out to God, saying, God, get us out of this mess. Ever been there? Let's just say it today together, right now. Are you ready for this? God, get us out of this mess. Yeah. So God called a man named Moses and told him to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power, and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? Ten. Ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. So Moses, it's kind of like packing bags, gathered the people and led them through the, you know this, he led them through the Red Sea and up to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. 
Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve. Twelve spies into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. Ten spies came back and said, no go. But two spies came back and said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten spies in this group. They said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you're going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount, this is my favorite one. You ready for this? Mount Nebo. It's hard to do sitting down, but knee, elbow, yeah. Mount Nebo. Where Moses died and a new leader was selected, we'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two spies who said, let's go. Joshua led the people through uh, the Jordan River, and they divided up the land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges. It's like a gavel for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges. God, give us a king. king. The first king was Saul. The second king was David. And the third king was Solomon. They ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, though, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. But keep in mind that all of it together was also still called Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was? Impressive, Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom was? Jerusalem. There were ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. And how many good kings in the south? There were, we'll say, eight. In 722 B.C., King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. Let's try that together. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came over to Judah, the southern kingdom, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. Seventy years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king sent three leaders back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple, reestablished communication. That, uh, that was Zerubbabel, rebuilt the temple, reestablished communication with God, that was Ezra, and rebuilt the wall, that was Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi, and he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst onto the scene shouting about Jesus Christ saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Folks, we just covered the entire Old Testament. Give yourselves a hand. One thing you should have noticed is that in all, <clears throat> excuse me, I still have this little tickle cough. I'll have to bear with me. <clears throat> One thing you should have noticed is that in all the history, God was faithful, even though it, the people were often unfaithful. 
But understand that at the time of Malachi, the people were just kind of done. They were cooked. They were sick of church and everything to do with it, if you will. They were, they were sick of persecution and being the minority opinion on everything. They hated their neighbors. They didn't know how much more they could take. Sound familiar at all to anyone today? They just felt like God's promises were simply not coming true. They were oppressed and barely making it. They were not so sure that it was a good thing at all to be the people of God. Meanwhile, in more ways than they even realized, they themselves continued to be unfaithful. And their unfaithfulness was causing problems, as always. I believe Christians today find themselves in a similar position. We don't understand why God has let things get so bad. <sighs> why we suddenly feel like insignificant islands surrounded by an ocean of those who do not know God or share our convictions. Where is the blessing of God? Or is expecting His blessing even biblical? Side note, yes. To a certain degree it is. But we don't know, we don't know why life's so hard. And we don't know why our country's going down the drain. And we don't know why Jesus still hasn't returned to fulfill His promises. Meanwhile, as we complain and bicker, we continue to be unfaithful in many ways. But God had a word for them, and He has a word for us. Let's look at the remainder of the text from Malachi that we're going to cover today. From verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Now it's God speaking again. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. <clears throat> from the beginning we can see the literary structure will continue throughout this entire book God will make a statement to the people and then as if to voice what he knows they are thinking God will answer himself with a skeptical question on their behalf and then he'll respond to that question bottom line God knows their hearts have strayed we can see this in their quick, callous response to such a profound statement. God says, I have loved you, which is the most amazing truth that has ever been spoken, ever. And yet they respond with cynicism. How have you loved us? Still, God patiently answers the question. He tells them exactly how he has loved them. Now, before we get into the deeper theology of this passage, I want to make sure we don't miss the main point, which is simply that God loves His people. More than that, God wants us to stop our complaining long enough to remember His love. In fact, this is the starting point for everything God has to say in this oracle known as Malachi. Here we have people who are obstinate, straying from God, questioning God, and the first thing he wants to say to them is, remember my love. God begins not with their poor behavior, but with his love. 
This is very important for us to understand, both in terms of what we need to hear from God today, and also, I think, in terms of how we would tell others about Him. Either way, we should start with God's love. He wants to love people. This is the reason for our slogan, which is found at the center of what we believe is God's vision for Go Church. That slogan is this, because of love. This is our why. This is the reason we started Go Church in the first place, because of love. But times have been tough in many ways. And just like the original audience of Malachi, I wonder if we do not need this reminder again today. Many of those in the original audience were spiritual leaders, as we'll find out, even priests. They should have known better, and yet clearly their hearts had turned from God. Some of them probably knew they had turned, and maybe they even hated themselves for it. Others maybe were less self-aware, thinking they'd been faithful when in a million little ways they had not. Their hearts had strayed. Their minds were focused on so many things, anything other than the special love God had reserved for them. The context of the book shows us these are people who are kind of still trying, but they have drifted. They have strayed. And yet the first thing God says to them is not, hey, you whiny baby half-hearted sinners. But rather, God says, remember, I have loved you. And God does this, does this, even as he anticipates their insolent response. How have you loved us? Makes me want to slap those pretentious priests. We are priests, you know. We'll cover that next week. I remember sometimes I have that same ridiculous thought. What have you done for me lately, God? When will these trials ever end? Why haven't you answered my prayers? Maybe I don't say it out loud, but neither did they. God read their thoughts and said it for them. And then he answered their unspoken question by making a comparison between the way he had treated them versus the way he had treated the Edomites. Let's read that part again. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we've been beaten down, but we'll return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. So, in God's real life illustration... Esau represents the Edomites, his descendants, while Jacob represents the Israelites, his descendants. Edom had been a nation located southeast of Jerusalem in what is now Jordan, but by the time Amalekai had been utterly destroyed with nothing left but ruins, used to shelter by jackals. God is pointing this out so that the remnant of Israel will realize, by contrast, that his love for them has meant something as real as their survival and relative blessing, and this in spite of their continued disobedience. Now, this passage is famously quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 in order to make a case about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I'm not going to go far into that today, but at least notice that here we are talking about two nations more than we are talking about two people. If you read the story of Jacob and Esau, 
you'll not see God acting in hatred toward Esau as a person, as a man, but actually you'll see Esau being blessed independently of and also later even by Jacob himself. The point here and in Romans 9 is more about nations or groups of people than it is about individuals. The point is that God does in fact always have a chosen people, a remnant, a household of faith for his own possession, those who are in fact the recipients of his very special covenantal love, which as he explains results in some real blessings including a level of protection and providence that others who are not loved in this way do not have. Edom and Esau's people had been destroyed. Israel and Jacob's people, or at least some of them, had been preserved. See, one of these two nations had a deal with God. By the way, a deal that was born in faith. They had a deal with God, a covenant of love, while the other did not. The other did not. And God is saying, look, if it were not for my love for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now you who have followed in their footsteps with at least some level of faith, well, you would not be back home in the promised land right now, but instead you would be completely destroyed and scattered without a home, just like the descendants of his brother, Esau. Additionally, all of this was supposed to help God's people see that the ultimate promises of the Messiah and the coming kingdom of God remained intact for them. Even though it seemed like recent history had only worked against them, God is saying that because of his unfailing love, they are still in line to receive his promises, which is incredible considering their various seasons of rebellion. An exile that turned into a sojourn that turned into many of them not even wanting to go home. And all of their other failures over hundreds of years now, and yet God is saying, hey, I am not slow concerning my promise, as some count slowness, 2 Peter 3, 9, but I am patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The main point being that it's all still going to happen in God's timing, which of course it did. And we celebrate that timing every Christmas. But these people were still waiting and they needed this reminder about God's love, which could be seen both in how they had been preserved as opposed to Edom. And also, as we'll also see in the end of the book, will be ultimately demonstrated in the birth of Jesus Christ. In the same way today, we need this reminder about God's love for his people. Both that he's preserved and blessed us beyond others who do not know him. In the now, and ultimately that his love will be manifested in us in the second coming of Christ. By the way, Jesus eventually came the first time, and he will eventually come the second time. Let me encourage you to be vigilant in your anticipation and expectation of his glorious return. So the immediate context here is the unfailing, eternal love of God for his people. When asked cynically, how he loves them. God contrasts his love for Israel with his hatred for the Edomites. The difference being nothing less than obliteration versus restoration. Both the Edomites and the Israelites had been unfaithful. And yet one of the two groups was in the process of being restored while the other had been wiped out. God goes even further in making the point that both of these situations are eternal. There would always be restoration for Jacob's people, but there would never be restoration for Esau's people. He's using the two nations as idioms 
to contrast his love for those who know him by faith with those who do not know him. And now we come to it. A hard truth about love that we nonetheless need to understand. Here's how I might say it. Love loses its meaning if it is the same for everyone. Love loses its meaning if it is the same for everyone. We live in an age of moral relativism when everything is supposed to be the same. They tell us that all sin is the same to God. It's all the same to God, which is a lie from Satan. Easily disproven from Scripture. Some sin is more heinous than other sin. Some sin has worse consequences than other sin. Some sin hurts more people than other sin hurts. All sin is not just the same to God. That's a topic for another day. But similarly, they tell us we should all love each other exactly the same. We should just love everybody, every, love, every, love, everybody love the same, everybody love the same. Which is equally wrong. Why? Because the only way to make all sin or all love the same is to water sin and love down into meaninglessness. There'll be no especially passionate love if all love is the same. The devil is behind these and other sameness doctrines. He comes to rob us of meaning in life. And deception is one of his greatest tools. For our purposes today, understand that love loses its meaning and power if God loves everyone exactly the same. Universalism is meaningless nonsense. No, if it's all the same, then what does it even mean if I say God loves me? Is that even encouraging? What does it mean to be chosen if everyone is chosen? Is this what we see in our text today? Is Pastor Mark just bloviating stuff today, or is he going by the text? No, we see in the text throughout the Bible, we see that God has a special love that is reserved for some, specifically his people. Stay with me. Life is not found in everything being the same, nor is truth. What about heaven? What about heaven? Will we all love each other the same in heaven? I don't think so. Where do we get the idea that in heaven we'll all even know each other? How do we know that? Will we not even need to meet people or have a conversation? Will there be no point in introducing ourselves? Will we be all-knowing? I'm pretty sure that's not in the Bible. We made it up. I believe we will still experience different levels of intimacy in our heavenly relationships. If there are distinctions such as close or special or passionate, or if we can grow closer or even enjoy getting to know somebody better, then it can't be all the same. The joy of relationship is in progress. Without the potential for growth, there's no joy in life. I'm sure it'll be so different there that I can't even imagine it, but where did we get the idea that in heaven we will know a couple billion people with equal intimacy and love them all exactly the same? I don't see that in the Bible. Sometimes we are guilty of turning heaven into a place with no meaning. You can find similar ideas in Eastern panentheism. 
or any of the satanic efforts to make heaven a place where my personal identity doesn't matter. I want to tell you on the basis of Scripture and even the example of Jesus that it's not wrong or a sin to love one person differently or even more than another. While I absolutely want to continue to grow in my love for everyone, I will never love any of you the same as I love my children. And worse, I'll have to admit that I love some of you more than others. Yes, I'm wanting to quote Bilbo at this point. And I like less than half of you half as much as you deserve. It's how it is with love. And I don't believe this characteristic of love comes from the fall of man into sin or that is somehow wrong, but rather it is the nature of love because it is the nature of God. He can love differently and he can love more or less. We can see this throughout the story of Scripture. How do I know that loving different people differently or even more or less is the nature of God's love? Because I read the Bible and I take it at face value. We can absolutely see in Scripture that God's love can be stronger for one than another. And clearly there's nothing wrong with God's love. He himself even said, Esau, I hate it. Why did God say this? To show contrast so that the people of Jacob could see that God had a special love for them, which he did not have for all. Why do we have so much trouble with God loving some more differently than others? Well, honestly, our problem is with jealousy and envy, and our problem is that we want to tell God how he must be as if we were his judge. This is where we go wrong in our understanding of God's love, through jealousy and envy, and because we think we get to tell God how to be. But see, the absence of jealousy and envy and the absence of such idolatry as telling God how to be will be love in heaven. So you say, well then, who does God love the most? Frankly, those whom he chooses. Scripture couldn't be clearer on that. But why does he choose them? Well, that's where theologians really start to be divided. <laughs> Personally, I believe God's choice has something to do with our faith. The book of Hebrews even tells us that it's only by faith that we please God. I think that even means that to please God more, you can practice more faith. On the other side of the coin, I do also believe that our faith is influenced and empowered somehow by God's choice. But if you start talking about faith being imputed or basically forced, no, we're going to disagree at that point. There's a mystery to all of it. But listen, if we can have more faith, I believe we can also have more love. I believe I can grow in my love for God, quite possibly even in heaven, which is exciting to think about. Now, I realize this gets into some territory nobody wants to consider about how some wind up being children of wrath and others children of love. But we know that's the case, do we not? That's what happens. You know the end of the story. Depart from me, I never knew you. You and I need to understand this as believers because in the end, understanding this will change our lives. When you really begin to understand that you are chosen and that God came after you because he loves you in a very special way, it will change your life. Mm -hmm. Listen, fellow believer, you are special to God. 
He loves you in a way that he's not loved Esau or Edom, which is to say he loves you in a way that he does not love those who do not come to know him by grace through faith. Look at the whole of Scripture, and there's absolutely no way you'll come out believing that God loves everyone the same. Or what did you think God meant when he said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? What does it mean when he says in chapter 3 of this same book that those who revere him in faith are his own treasured possession? Chapter 3 of this same book. We'll get there. What about everybody else? Well, they're not his treasured possession, folks. But if you are his, you are. Are you? Someone who doesn't know me yet... or hasn't heard some of my other sermons, is thinking, oh, this pastor must be a Calvinist, a staunch five-point Calvinist up there. (laughs) Ah, the ever-changing labels of our age. Since you brought it up. (laughs) No, I have issues with several of the five points. Actually, depending on how you interpret them. When I was growing up and learning about those things in church, I didn't have issues with them. Things have changed. Now I have some issues. There's truth on both sides of this theological coin. And today, you know, Alistair Begg, I love Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg, he he talks about how one Sunday they think he's a Calvinist and another Sunday they think he's something else. Probably not all the way to Arminian, but not a Calvinist, we'll just say. Depends on what he's preaching. I think that says something about the Bible and the tension. Hmm. There's truth on both sides. Today, we need to get that God's love is very special for those who believe. And that we can even grow in his love by faith. We need to remember his love. On the one hand, many of you don't like to hear this point, that God loves some more than others. And that's possibly because you're influenced by a, a world, worldly view of justice rather than a biblical one. But while you're worrying about everyone else, who I believe get their chance, by the way, Romans 1, You, fellow Christian, need to let yourself be impacted by the most incredible truth that's ever been uttered, which is this. God loves you in a very, very special way. He does. I don't think you'd be here today in this room if this were not true. He brought you here because God loves you. He loves you special. What was God's purpose in saying this to his children through Malachi? After spiritual decline and nary a prophet for almost 100 years, why did God start with, I have loved you? He wanted them to remember the most important truth that could ever be spoken. They were down and discouraged, and they didn't think God had kept his promises. They felt like they had been left to fend for themselves in a world hostile to their beliefs. God had been really, really quiet. God had not shown up they thought. Where was God when this happened or that happened? Where were the promises? When would the Messiah get there and fix everything? Sound familiar? 
And yet God had actually heard their cries. And because of this undeserved compassion for them, he wanted the first thing for them to hear to be an affirmation of his passionate love. Even though they were still messing up, he wanted them to be revived by a clear reminder of his unique, exclusive, yes, exclusive, special love for them. Love he does not have for just anyone. If you've been here for long, you've heard me talk before about God loving everyone in the whole world and Jesus dying for everyone. But don't misunderstand me when I say that. There is a general love for everyone and an opportunity for everyone. I totally believe that. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But along with that truth, never forget that God has a special, exclusive, and eternal kind of love for those who come to him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe the church today needs to hear exactly the same thing the people of God needed to hear from Malachi. We need to hear this from God if you know Jesus. Don't ever let anyone convince you that God's love for you is generic and that you're no more special to him than anyone else. That's simply not true. I do believe God loves the whole world, but listen, if you know Jesus, he loves you more. I think that's extremely clear in our text today. Why does he love you more? (laughs) On the one hand, because he chose you, but is there a reason he chose you, or is it utterly arbitrary? I don't think it's arbitrary. As mentioned, I believe there is a reason. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you've demonstrated that you are his chosen treasured possession. Good luck trying to figure out foreknowledge and predestination and how it all goes together. We can have coffee and talk about it sometime if you want to waste some time. But what's really important is that you get it. That God's love for you is special and it's personal. He has your name written in his book, and you're the apple of his eye, the center of his affections. And folks, as it's clear in our text, this is simply not true for everyone. But if you know him, it's true for you. God chose you before you were born. He died for you with the full knowledge that his death was earning you salvation. Eternity is home forever. Those who accept the Messiah by faith prove to be the true children of Israel, recipients of the new covenant, which means we are the object of God's love by his choice. That is his grace, and this love is applied through our faith in Jesus Christ. It's no coincidence that the very first words of the last oracle of God in the old covenant are these, I have loved you. Was he talking to everybody? No, he wasn't. He was talking to his people. If God's love endured for them, it has endured for you. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. You can return because he has loved you. How do you need to embrace this truth today? How do you need to return? I've been focused on everything that's wrong. Maybe you need to spend a little time focused on God's love, His blessings in your life. Remember the old days, count your blessings? That old hymn that we sang like, I don't know, eight, nine million times. (laughs) But it's still in there. 
It was good. Count your blessings. It, was, it wasn't just a hymn. It was also a concept. I remember hearing about it a lot more than we talk about it these days. What have you been doing? Have you been counting your blessings or counting your pains? And then there may be somebody here today that, that, that has to admit, I'm not on that side of it. You've never put your faith in God. You've not proven that you're chosen by coming to Christ. What, what are you waiting for? You're here today. That tells me something. Maybe today's the day that you just turn. Just turn away from everything else, whatever way you've been going, and say, I'm not going that way anymore. I'm coming to Jesus. I need him. I need God. I need God's love. I don't want the general love of God. I want this exclusive love of God, the one that lasts forever in a place called heaven. I want to be his child. I want to be adopted into the family. Is there anybody left that wants to do that, left in our world today that would actually respond and say, yes, enough of all this other nonsense. I just need Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just lay it down today. Maybe somebody listening online. I don't know. There's a very, very special love reserved, the love that sent Jesus to the cross. He died with your name on his mind. I don't know who you are. He does. Let's also be in prayer for a minute. God, just I pray right now that whatever needs to happen, whether a believer needs to return to you, our hearts have strayed, admit it, confess it, Make some decisions today to focus on and remember your love, your special, special love. We have nothing to fear, not even death. Or maybe there's somebody today, God, that would have to go, oh, that's what the Bible says about those who don't know God by faith? I don't like that. Esau, I hated. You can turn today. The offer is yours. He's not willing that any would perish. He's hoping. He longs for you to be saved. I believe that. Whoever you are, would you respond? Would you say yes to God and his offer? It's a gift. Gifts have to be received. Would you receive it by faith today? How do I do that? You say, just say yes. Just turn. Turn away. Say, I... I know where I've been going isn't towards you, God. Today, I'd like to be your child. And I'm believing Jesus died on a cross for my sin. So I'd like for that gift, that payment that he made to be applied to me today. Lord, please, I want your love. I want to be one of yours. I want to be part of the family. All that you would turn to him. He stands at the door of our hearts knocking. I know that passage is actually written to believers, but I think it can mean more. He wants to come into our life. I believe that. He wants you to be one of his. Would you surrender today? Just say, yes, Lord. Today's the day. I'm, I'm locking it down. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be your child. By faith. Save me. Thank you for the day that that happened for me, Lord. Thank you for the life that I've been able to live, a blessed life. Not perfect, plenty of pain, but definitely a blessed life. 
with an even more blessed future. Thank you, God, for loving us. We don't deserve it. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.